Morena Tafana. Um, this morning I'm going to share with you some of the cultural differences that those of us who come from different cultures have to deal with. Uh, in particular, I'm going to give you some tips. So any of you who are planning to move to Italy at any point will be very well prepared. Something I should have done to poor Alan when he came and visited me a few years ago for, for a week. I should have given him his, these tips. But here's what it's like if I were to uproot you from this New Zealand culture and move you to Italy, some of the things you need to be aware of, okay? First thing, queues only apply to tourists. If you see people standing behind people, they're not Italian. I'm going to warn you right, that's even in a car as well, okay? If you're standing in line, you will never get served. It's just the way it is in Italy. Um, Believe me, because the next point is really important. Patience is the key. If you come from a well-structured society like New Zealand, and I know some of you would think, is it really that well-structured? Compared to Italy, it is, okay? You need a lot of patience. You've got to deal with bureaucracy. You've got to deal with all sorts of crazy things. And you wonder, how does this society manage to work? Patience is the key. Another thing you need to be aware of is that food is life. I can't begin to explain to you how important food is in Italian culture. Greek culture is the same. In fact, most of the Mediterranean culture, food is life. It is a very important aspect of life. It's not just something you need to fill your bellies. It's the way you communicate. It's the way you enjoy each other's company. It's the way you do business deals as well. Food is life. Another thing that Kiwi culture doesn't understand is that coffee itself is a culture of its own. Now, in Italy, you don't get much of a choice about what you're going to have with your coffee. It's not like going into Starbucks. Okay, it's, it's, it's really specific. You've got to fight to get to the front to get yourself a coffee that's about this tall. You down it and you back out the door to go on it with your business. That's how coffee works. You don't have a cappuccino after breakfast. Okay? This is how it works in Italy. If you want to sit down and have a coffee, do it at home. If you're sitting down, you're going to have some sweet, you're going to have something like a croissant or a donut or something, and you may have a coffee with it. But coffee is all about fuel to keep you going. Personal space is another issue you're going to have to get used to. In Italy, there is no such thing as personal space. Um, there is really no personal space. You, you live in a little box of an apartment. Everybody's around you. Everybody can hear you. You can hear everybody else. Everywhere you go, there's a million people around you and everybody knows your business. And you know theirs, whether you like it or not. There is no luxury of personal space. Another thing, and this is really difficult for those of us in what I would say a, an Anglo New World culture. So whether it's America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, we don't understand this, but dress the way you want to be treated. And this is really important in Italy. Everybody dresses really well because they all want to be treated well. 
You can tell an American from just by what they're wearing. You can tell where they're from just by what they're wearing. And if I dressed like this to church, I'd be in trouble. Because I'm being, in a sense, disrespectful or I'm, or I'm wanting people to be disrespectful. It's just cultural things. Now, breaking it down a little bit more into the funniest side of stuff, first of all, use the passing lane only for passing. In Italy, they will kill you. I was the other night we were driving back from Wellington and Bex was driving and this guy was just, you know, on Highway 2, he's stuck on the right side. There's no one on the left. She gets up behind him thinking, oh, he's going to move to the left now so we could pass. Nope, he's standing right there. And then there's a car behind her that comes. Then there's a car. That, we have to go. In Italy, that wouldn't happen. They will drive you off the road. <laughs> it's passing lanes only passing lanes. Actually, most of Europe is like that anyway. Don't eat in the car. If you want to eat in the car, step out. Italians are very picky about their cars. It's strange. I don't know. But you can't eat in the car. And it's Nutella, not Nutella. Let me make that really clear. Nutella is Italian. Let me make that clear as well. One of the blessings that we've given out to the world. Um, chicken parmigiana, spaghetti bolognese and pepperoni pizzas are not Italian. <laughs> Notice I didn't put something else up there. Pineapple. Yes. Pineapples come from the tropics. Italy's not in the tropics. Now, this is really important because Italians take this quite seriously. And you know, when I tell you food is life, it's part of their cultural identity. And when it gets messed around, you'll see some TikToks and Instagram reels where they make fun of breaking the pasta in half or eating pasta from a can. We Italians actually can get quite riled up over stuff like that. You don't understand that you're playing with our cultural identity. We laugh, and I laugh too, but actually it can get quite serious for some people. Another thing is, um, actually this goes with two points. There's no go-to uh, to go options and eat everything you're given. This is something that poor old Alan, if I told him ahead of time, he wouldn't have found himself in this issue. And if he had a good friend to explain it to him beforehand, it, it would have been good, but I was not a good friend to him. He came to visit us, visit me, while I was staying in Italy a, a few years ago. And we spent a week together and Went to see a good friend of mine, Massimo, and, um, at his work, and then we went down to the local bar, which is kind of like a corner store slash coffee restaurant. And we went in to have lunch, and Massimo yelled out to the kitchen, he goes, what's the pasta today? Because in Italy, you don't go to a place to eat, the place where locals go to, and you have about a dozen pasta choices to, to choose from. You usually only have one or two, and it's whatever the chefs decided to make that day. So he yells out, what you got today? And he came back and said, this is what's on. He goes, okay, and make sure you don't give us this tourist portions because you'll get me mad. And Marcel was telling the chef this and we're like, yeah, yeah, we all sit down to have our pasta. Now, poor old Al, I'd just taken him before this to eat pizza. So he was a bit full, okay? So <laughs> we sat down and we're eating pasta and, and halfway through his bowl, he's full. Like any regular, normal human being, he's had enough. And all the guys around the table, they're looking at me and they're going, what's wrong with your friend? And I'm like, Al, well, you're okay? He goes, no, I'm full, man. And I went back to the guys, he says he's full. Full from what? <laughs> what's going on here? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't tell him all about this. He doesn't know anything about it. Then the chef comes out to come and talk to us. And we're all talking, the chef looks at Alan's plate, he goes, what's wrong with him? He doesn't like my food. And Alan's starting to cop, you know, he's getting this vibe, right, that things aren't going right here because we're all talking in Italian. 
And he's like, look, I could take it to go. It's really good. I'll have it to go. And I'm like, oh, I, oh yeah, I'll say it. <laughs> and I told him, he goes, he wants it to go. And the chef just gets really mad. He's like, what's he gonna do with it? He's gonna take it home. What's he gonna do with it at home? Oh, what is this? And he just gets all the plates, including Alan's, and he takes it away, right? A couple of days later, we go to Massimo, my friend's place, and, and his parents are like my parents. I mean, I call Mama, Mama. She's Mama. She's, and by the end of the week, even Alan was calling Mama, Mama. But she meets Alan for the first time. We get to the apartment door, opens the door, hey, Mama. And she looks at Alan before even saying hello, you're going to eat everything I put in front of you. You don't dare do this to me. Doesn't even say hello. And Alan's like, what did she say? I said, you better eat everything she puts in front of you. <laughs> um, you know, it's just like, oh my goodness, you just, it wouldn't happen here. But then there's a next point is, mothers are always the ones really in charge. You could be in a deeply patriarchal society in the middle of country Italy, mums are always in charge. They let the men pretend to be in charge, but they're not, okay? Another thing you need to understand in Italy is like something simple, like the number 13 is actually a lucky number in Italy. The unlucky number is number 17. I don't know why. I haven't delved that deep into my own culture, but that's the things that you just gotta get used to. The other thing is men kiss and hug, get used to it. In Italy, I mean, I grew up with it, so it wasn't much of an issue for me, but it is, it's like, why are they so affectionate with each other? Men, you know, and you imagine Kiwi men being affectionate with each other. No, we can't, can we? Um, but it, it's quite normal in Italy that, again, because we don't have personal space, men are quite affectionate. One thing you need to also understand is you don't wear purple at a wedding. Never go to an Italian wedding wearing purple. Anyone know why? Because purple is the colour of death. It's what Jesus wore, apparently, um, when he was taken up to Golgotha. So Italians are very superstitious, you don't wear purple. And you also don't do this. You never give chrysanthemums as a gift to a woman. Chrysanthemums are only for grave sites. If you want to break up with your girlfriend, <laughs> just do that. Now, it's all funny and I'm, I'm doing all this as a big long intro into this sermon, but the point I'm trying to make is we don't expect Italy to adapt to us. If we move to a place like Italy, we have to adapt, right? We could be whoever we want to be at the end of the day. The only way we're going to make ends meet is meeting where the people are at, where they're at. And so we need to adapt. So the question and the challenge I've got for you this morning is this. Why do we expect the Bible to adapt to us? Why do we, in our modern day thinking, as whoever we are, twist and turn the Bible so that we can be ourselves rather than be challenged to be more like what the Bible is calling us to be, and that is more Christ-like. Because it is, in a sense, its own culture, its own way of living. And the challenge that we're faced with is how do we adapt to that? There's no... There's a reason why Jesus challenges us by dying to ourselves, by taking up our own cross. Because to follow him means to change from what we think is normal to becoming more 
like Jesus normal. And the Psalm I'm gonna challenge you with on this regard is Psalm 143. Psalm 143 will challenge you the way you communicate and interact with the Father in heaven. It will challenge you in how you've been taught all your life to pray and talk and communicate with God. Let's take a look at it. Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my plea. Answer me because you are faithful and righteous. Don't put your servant on trial for no one is innocent before you. My enemy has chased me, has knocked me to the ground and forces me to live in darkness like those in the grave. I am losing all hope. I am paralysed with fear. I remember those days of old. I ponder all your great works and think about what you have done. And so I lift my hands to you in prayer. I thirst for you as parched land, thirst for rain. Come quickly, Lord, and answer me for my depression deepens. Don't turn away from me or I will die. Let me hear of your unfailing love each morning for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk for I will give myself to you. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I run to you to hide me. Teach me to do your will for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing for the glory of your name, O Lord. Preserve my life because your faithfulness, because of your faithfulness, bring me out of this distress. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies and destroy all my foes for I am your servant. Now, I've shared this before. There is a bias when we translate the Bible because at the end of the day, even Bible translators will tell you we still look at it with our eyes. And so we communicate it in our way. But there is a deep-seated emotion in this psalm. Actually, pretty much in most psalms. There is a deep-seated emotion. I didn't use the message version and I'm not giving you my version today. I just want to give you what's up there. But you can imagine what this person is saying. I'm gonna break it down to, with, for you in just a few words. The first one is, I want to be heard and answered. Who begins their prayers with, I want to be heard and I want to be answered? It starts off like this by saying, hear my prayer, listen to my plea, answer me. That, that's verging on the disrespectful. When I first became a Christian and I was in a brethren church in Rome and I read that verse, Abba, Father, which translated means daddy. And I said to one of the elders there, do you call God daddy? No, he is not daddy, he's God. But the verse says this, no, he's daddy. Do you ever turn to God and say, God, where are you? Listen to me. Come on, answer me. Hear my prayer. When was the last time you prayed like that? We think it's disrespectful because in our culture, in the way we communicate with God, we've been taught we can't talk like that to God. But God is actually telling us, I want you to tell me what's on your heart. Do you not think I know what's on your heart? 
or do you sanitise it with your lips? Hear my prayer. Listen to my prayer. Answer me. Psalm 62 verse 8 says, Oh, my people, trust in Him at all times. Pour out your heart to Him, for God is our refuge. When I was a youth pastor many years ago, one of the things that stopped youth from praying was they just felt that they couldn't pray as eloquently as the adults did. And I thought to myself, what a travesty that is. And so I modelled a way to pray. I had to. Because for so long they hear these eloquent prayers. We had a a prayer warrior in our church at Southview. She was amazing. Monica will tell you. She could pray prayers that you would just stop and go, oh my goodness. And then no one wanted to pray. They wanted her to pray. And I was like, but, but, but that's not, that's the way she prays. That's great. But it, bear your heart. That's what he wants. He wants you to bear. And he's not just talking to any one of us. He's talking to all of us. Pour your heart out to him. Oh Lord, I beseech you this morning, come before us. Show us your mercy and grace and lead us into pastures new. Is that how you talk? Why do we use a different language when we talk with God? God, I'm upset. I'm angry. I don't know what to do. I'm so depressed. I can't get out of bed in the morning. I'm hurting and I'd rather just end it now. But we're afraid to pray those prayers. And so we never really know where each of us are and we never really feel community because our personal space is our personal space and nobody invades that, not even God. Psalm 51 says, but you desire honesty from the womb, from the moment I am shaped in the womb, you desire honesty. And this is wisdom, being honest. Um, of course, I was a youth pastor many years ago, <laughs> many years ago. But even then, the culture was not to doubt God. The culture was not to question God. And so many young people struggled because at times they doubted that God was even there. And we failed as a church in that period of time to say, actually, I, I, I'm a pastor and sometimes I feel that way. Sometimes I've got to question God why he allows these people in power. Why does he allow these things to happen? You moved me from the States, to Christchurch, which was wonderful. A miracle, Lord, except two months later, you hit us with earthquakes. I'm not happy about that. That changes everything. Why can't I just do my job? Why can't you just make it for once easy? Why can't you just for once give me a break? That's honesty. That's truth. And we've all felt it. We've all been weighed under by it. 
Answer me, Lord. Hear my prayer. Stop whatever you're doing and listen to me. We might think of that as disrespectful, but God wants your whole being. Broken, uneasy, hard, all of it. It's fascinating that Jesus on the cross says these words. It's the pinnacle of his moment where all of a sudden everything is gone and he is deeply alone. Now you need to understand this. You know, think of it, I'll I'll give it to you from a theological point of view. The Trinity doesn't break, it's one whole. But in this moment, Jesus, in his existence as a man, is separated from God. I don't know how that could even possibly happen. I can't even begin to explain it. But these words are enough for me to get a feeling of how lonely he felt in that moment. Now, most of us New Zealand Kiwi guys here or Aussie guys or wherever you're from, we like to keep that inside of us, don't we? But Jesus yelled it out. So everybody heard exactly how he felt. Why did he do that? What's the point? He wanted you to know how he was feeling. And many of us guys will sit here and feel just like that. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm good. Never better. This is who we are to be modelled from. This is who we aspire to be like. So I want to be heard. I want to be answered. Hear my prayer. Listen to my plea. Answer me. But also, Lord, keep me safe. Going on, these are the words I'm focusing on. Come quickly. Don't turn away. Rescue me. These three words, these three sentences, come quickly, don't turn away from me, rescue me, keep me safe. You know how many times I've had people pray when they're praying about themselves, then they feel the need they've got to pray about something else because it can't just be about me. Anyone been there? Where you've prayed, Lord, help me, I feel down, I can't do this. Oh no, I better pray for the world and for those who are better, you know, not better off than me. I, I am okay actually, Lord. And then you pray yourselves out of your own prayer. Anyone been there? The psalmist is not thinking this way. The psalmist doesn't, he's not thinking about world peace in his prayers. He is quite focused on himself. And sometimes it's okay to pray that way, guys. It's okay to ask for safety. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to be very self-centred in your prayers. You don't need my permission for that. God's telling it. You read the Psalms, I've got in the questions for our home groups. One of the questions is, just rifle through the book of Psalms and read through them and tell me how many Psalms you read that are quite self-centered. You know, it's all about them. Psalms is all about, good old David in particular, he's all about himself. That's not to say we shouldn't be. We should be praying for the world, of course we do. My team is doing it tonight. We're going to be doing it with our global focus team. We're going to pray for the world. We're going to pray for what's going on. That's all cool and well. But it's also okay to pray for yourselves. You don't need to temper it, balance it. Just do it. 
There's a reason why. Peter talks about it. Peter of all people knows about this. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy. It's interesting how people mess up the devil quite a bit. They think the devil is God's great enemy. He's not God's great enemy. He's our great enemy. There's no battle between God and Satan. The battle is between us and Satan. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You need to be praying for safety. You need to be praying for yourself because he feeds off it when you are not in a good space. Who do you turn to then? So we've got these two things. I want to be heard and answered. Keep me safe. And then just help me be. Help me be more like you. Help me be better than myself. Help me be, Lord. And towards the end here, we see, show me where to walk. Teach me to do your will. Lead me forward. These three steps. And by the way, it is all about me again, isn't it? Help me be. And it's fascinating because as this psalm comes to an end, and it's very typical of most psalms, uh, Psalm 31 shows it here, since you are my rock and fortress, for your sake, lead me and guide me. The, The psalmist is almost being manipulative here, isn't he? He's turning it around and saying, it's all about, you know, you, you need to make me look good because it make you look good in the end, right? But this is what Moses was faced with when he faced that burning bush. I imagine Moses would have been saying, I, I think I've been praying that same prayer time and time again, huh? But for 40 years, I don't think I heard you. For 40 years in the desert, you weren't answering. I want to be heard. And then he sent me off to some thing that's certainly going to cause me quite a great deal of pain. How am I going to be kept safe, Lord? How can I do this? The whole story of Exodus, we we turn it as like the people of God and God, but actually there's a very strong link here of a relationship between Moses and God and how Moses wrestles with not just the mantle of leadership or mission or anything like that, but his relationship with God. Like how, how am I being heard and how are you answering, Lord? You put me with these people. How am I supposed to deal with them? And Moses learns over time what I call God culture, what it means to be a follower for us of Jesus Christ. That our burning bush moment isn't necessarily being sent off to some far off country to convert people, or to even convert our communities, even though that may be part of God's mission. His ultimate mission is to get you to follow him and be part of him. To move you from here to here. And in that process, hopefully, prayerfully, have people turn around and say, what happened to him? What happened to her? So the challenge for you this week is while we have been conditioned to pray in these eloquent ways, and I'm not saying to change that, 
All I'm asking is, it's time for you to be honest and real in your prayers. And not just when you're here on a Sunday. I had a conversation with another pastor this week and he was talking about, yeah, Rob, we had several people slain in the spirit this Sunday. It was amazing. And I said, it's funny how people only get slain in the spirit in churches. I've never seen people get slain in the spirit in a supermarket. I've never seen people get slain in the spirit while they're working at their desk because God doesn't work in those spaces for them. Our faith is so compartmentalised that we'll only have it happening in these certain times. What about all over the place? And so our prayers or our worship happen on a Sunday, but what about the rest of the week? Do we pray those eloquent prayers as well during the week when it's just us? Are we afraid to pray those prayers in front of others? The biggest book in the Bible is about a person bearing his heart in ways that I'm not sure he was really intending for it to be 3,000 years later being read out. But here we are. That's your challenge this week. I'm going to ask the music team to come up as they lead us. And, and worship is, is all about God, right? We, we give this time to God, but our prayers are all about us and our relationship with God. And so the challenge you have this morning is, where are your prayers at? How much are you bearing your heart to God? Are you worried about what people think around you? Are you worried about disrespecting him? Is that the way you were taught when you grew up as a Christian? Do you doubt times that God is even there? Have you voiced that? Father God, here I am praying now. But Lord, I, I, you know how I've been feeling of late. I'm always flustered. I feel like I'm always flustered. I'm always frustrated. I'm always... And I come to you on a Sunday morning having to put a smile on and having to shave look good, I guess. But you know my heart, Lord. You know all our hearts, Father. Whether we look good or not, you know where we're at. And I thank you, Lord, that you aren't that God that is far off, <laughs> that is, you know, I've got to go through hoops and bounds to reach you. You are here now, here with us. You know us intimately. And teach us, Lord. Give us courage, Lord, to be honest with you and to each other. When we lift our words and our hearts to you, Lord, may they really reflect where we're at. May they really reflect who, who we are and not be fearful. Lord, you know our hearts. You know where we're at here. There's no hiding things from you, mate. Nothing at all. We are before you naked. 
Help us to change our culture, our way of living, to be more like you teach us, lead us. And Lord, we do ask for answers to our prayers because, you know, I've been praying to you for a while, Lord, and I'm not getting much. And I'm a bit flustered with that as well. And I'm not sure what to do with it, Lord. But I know deep down you are listening, I think. And I know that there are some here that are feeling kind of the same way. And some here I know are also feeling a little uncomfortable about this whole thing. And that's all okay. You are my God, our God. I'm glad I have hope in you. Thank you, Jesus. Let's stand together.